If we look at Genesis 16, we began this series at the beginning of the summer on foundations. And in your memories, you can go back and think, you know, it's the creation story and the fall and the flood because, you know, Cain went out to build a city and then the thoughts of men's hearts, I mean, the depravity of man just increased and increased. And, and then God chose out a family. I mean, there was no hope in man. That's the message of almost everything up until that point. No hope. And there needed to be a redemption. And God knew this before the foundation of the world even. And so learning all of that and then coming to this point here in this text and the next week for sure, um, it just opens it up. It helps you to understand why we're here, who we are, how we got here, and where we're going. Genesis chapter 16. Let's read a couple verses and pray. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, by the way, if I say Sarah and Abraham a couple times, forgiveth thou me, please, because it's, uh, it's hard not to do that. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children, and she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing I pray thee, or ask thee, go in unto my maid, it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of God. You know, I counsel men all the time, listen to your wives. Wives have a sixth sense, they have an extra set of wisdom. They, they really do. They're, that's why God gave them to you. But here's an instance where he shouldn't have listened. Because God already told Abram and Sarah, what was going on? But it says in this case that Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarah, Sarai. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I ask, Lord, that we will see and understand why you have preserved these words in this eternal book for us. Why we have them right now at this moment in our hands. And the Holy Spirit of God wants to bring them into our hearts. And in understanding it, Father, learn more about you and your will and your plan for our lives. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the blessings, one of the benefits, obviously, of studying the foundation of really, literally everything, that's what this book is, is that it provides, as much as anything else, a sense of context in life. For example, last week we studied Genesis chapter 15. And that describes this covenant that God made with, with Abram. It was a covenant, you'll remember, that was really made unilaterally. In other words, where God passing through the midst of the sacrifices alone, Abraham was in a deep sleep. It was God and God alone who guaranteed the fulfillment of that promise, that covenant, not Abraham at all. So that the entire covenant was dependent not upon the faithfulness of a man, but rather upon the faithfulness of the God. And of course, that's very important for us to get into our hearts and our minds. Because when you consider chapter 16, you find that Abraham's faith falters. I mean, we went from chapter 15 to this covenant, this promise, the father of great nation, the father of the faithful, Abraham believed God and it was imputed unto him for righteousness. And one chapter later, one chapter later, one verse later after the end of the other chapter, Abraham, this is our hero. Think about this. This is Abraham. This is the man who mustered an army. 
gathered up over 300 men and went and delivered Lot and his family from Sodom. This was the man who left Ur of the Chaldees. This is the father of the faithful, the very same man. Guess what? He's not perfect. The covenant was not up to Abraham. The redemption, the plan of salvation was not up to man. And here we see he makes a decision all the way back then in chapter 16 here that that has ramifications carried all the way up to this very night, front page news this very day. You may remember a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, when we noted that, that at the beginning point of anything, at the very beginning point of something when someone or something is a, just a little bit off, you know, on a vector, just a little bit off, and if he, even if it's just by a few degrees, it may be fine right then and there, but as time goes on, and we kind of illustrated this, I think, with Bobby, that farther and farther do these two, two things find themselves apart. They get magnified with the passing of time. And we talked about certain differences that are placed in this foundational book, foundational issues regarding, for example, the nature of man. Man is basically good, that's the truth, but if you get a little bit off of that and you believe that man is, basic, or man is basically bad, if you believe that man is basically good, down the road, problems. You know, two people can agree on a thousand things. But if one of them turns away on this one thing, eventually they'll be a thousand miles apart. Well, the same dynamic you're going to see is now found because God has chosen out sons of Shem, a man. He's chosen out a family who's going to make a brand new nation. And if you get off on this, this will show us, teach us, tell us some geopolitical religious issues. The whole history of all of that up until this very night we can learn from this book. Abraham, a son of Shem, represents the very beginnings, the very foundation, if you will, of God's working with the nations of men to fulfill his plan. So it stands to reason that everything that would happen to this man, all right, everything that happens to Abraham and his family in the very first years, all right, again, in the very early years, are going to turn things into a certain direction. And over time, they will become more and more evident. And by the way, once again, the Bible, our foundation tonight, gives the only answer. It really does give the only explanation as to why, for example, there's such a hatred between Arabs and Jews today. I mean, you can go back in the Balfour Agreement, you can go back, some, but this is the book that goes all the way back and the only book if you believe it, if you understand it, it enlightens us. I remember when Jimmy Carter was meeting at Camp David with Yasser Arafat, and, and I remember how they were all excited and this, and, and, in, and I was a young man. I was a kid almost. And I remember reading all the news and thinking, nice try. Before the ink is wet, this thing is not, or dry, but this thing is not going to work. It explains why the Middle East, even to this day, from history on to today and always into the future, Genesis 16 gives us the key as to why it's always and will always be a bit of a problem. There are a hundred historical mysteries. They are mysteries to the people of the world. I mean, I've read history books. I love history. It's my favorite subject, next to the Bible, of course. 
But none of these really are mysteries to the people of this book. Chapter 16, verse 3. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now, let me just say this. In the culture of that time, this practice was quite acceptable. It was not shocking. It was not unusual at all. Sarah was barren. Medically, we know it was at her age, it would be impossible for her to conceive and bear a child. She certainly knew that, even though God had given this promise. And so according to the legal customs of the day, she hatches a plan. She hatches a plan forgetting both the promises of God but also the fact that God often repudiates current social customs. Just because something's the custom and just because it's widely accepted does not mean at all there are things that our Supreme Court has made legal. That doesn't mean now we need to re-figure out whether we think it's right or wrong. Verse 4, And he went unto Hagar, and she conceived. And when she, Sarah, saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. You know what, folks? This is human nature at work. Hagar is expecting a baby now, and you think for a moment, really, do you suppose that she's going to quietly and happily just give this baby to Sarai as Sarai's firstborn? I mean, you can say that it's the custom of the day. You can say anything you want. But this is human nature. And not only that, do you think that Sarai sees Hagar through the same eyes that she did before now that Hagar's married to Abram and is going to provide him his beloved son? No, that's never going to happen. Verse 6. But Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly, which means harshly, with her, she fled from her face. Now we're going to look at verse 5 in a moment. But man, you can see that this decision within just weeks is turning into a real mess. Jealousy, distrust, animosity, bitterness, rivalry, the proverbial triangle... I remember years ago, there was a Time magazine in the barbershop, and I had a couple of the boys with me, and the cover of this Time magazine, some of you may remember it, had a picture of a Palestinian woman and an Israeli woman face-to-face. Their eyes were full of anger. Their mouths were open, and they were screaming, and they both had their fingers pointed in their faces. It was an actual picture, a candid photo of, of something that had happened in the streets of the Middle East. And... I saw that picture and I, that Time magazine, and I held up to one of the boys. I don't remember one, and I said, "Look at this picture." I said, "There is Sarah, Sarai, and there is Hagar. There is Isaac's mother, and there is Ishmael's mother. And in four thousand years, really, not a whole lot has changed. Abraham and Sarah were ordinary people, and they had ordinary hopes, fears." desires, dreams. Abraham is not a superman. And for Abraham or Abram, more than anything else, he wanted an heir. He wanted an heir. He wanted a son who would carry on all of the great things that now he was dreaming about that God told him that he would have and do. 
For Sarai, more than anything else, she wanted to provide that heir. And she was frustrated beyond words with the inability to do so. I wonder how many of us tonight have waited and waited and waited and waited so long for something. For God to open a door, for God to bring somebody, for God to do something, just waited and waited and waited, and you waited so long you forced the issue. You add to that, in this situation, here they are, they're all growing old, they're in their 80s now, these two, these two people. She cannot bear children, humanly speaking. So, so wonder if God was mistaken or maybe God had another plan. And you look at their situation and they say, well, we have this younger servant girl. There is this legal loophole that exists in our culture and society. There's the worldly reasoning that comes into Sarah's mind. And then this, this carnal resolve. The impatience of the flesh after waiting and waiting and waiting. And now you have the beginnings of a 4,000-year-old mess. And really, beloved, you think about it. It is all because Abram simply allowed his flesh to triumph instead of his faith to triumph. Decisions change everything. And the bigger the decision, the more the change. And if you make a decision, you're either going to say, five years from now, young people, you're either going to say, would God I had, or thank God I did. And it depends on what you make the decision based upon, faith or flesh. And you can see, I can see the rationalization that took place here. God promised Abraham a son, not Sarah. Go back and read the promise. God promised Abraham a son. God identified the father of that son, but not the mother. Go back and read it. This is how they can rationalize this in their mind. And so according to the most civilized, decent, progressive legislative codes in the world at the time, including the Code of Hammurabi, he could acquire a son by proxy. Everybody else doesn't. I mean, God didn't say it had to be Sarah to be the mother, only that I am the father. So let's go around this impossible situation. Let's go around this, this barrenness and get the fruit through Hagar the Egyptian. And can I just say parenthetically that as a picture, spiritual picture, that's exactly what I see, we see happening in churches in America. A lot of pastors and a lot of churches are frustrated by the seeming barrenness, the lack of real fruit, namely numbers, should be bigger and more powerful and better. And they're wondering, what's taking God so long? What's taking God so long for our church or our country or revival or miracles? And instead of waiting on God, some Hagar is brought in. Some Egyptian worldly expedient is adopted. And as I remember John Phillips once said, you get results, but you pay a price. There's always a price to pay when you try to go around, circumvent God's way. Abram and Sarai are getting results for their scheme. But it is the wrong kind of result, and everybody is going to pay a price. Go back to verse 5 I mentioned earlier. And Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. 
Now, this is right after Hagar conceives. And Sarah said to Abram, my wrong be upon thee. What's she saying? She's saying, you know what? This is your fault. And she admits, my wrong, but it's your fault. That's human nature, too. That's not just women. That's men. Sarai said unto Abram, My wrong be upon thee. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. I think that goes both ways. The Lord judge between me and thee. It's your fault. Sarah's blaming Abram for what's happened. And she's sort of mistreating Hagar horribly now. Again, that's just human nature. That's predictable for, for all of us, right? We, we could see this coming down, coming. He abdicates his authority. He abdicates his responsibility. And the whole thing turns terribly sour. Wait a minute. This is Abraham, the father of the faithful. How could he so quickly fall and make such foolish decisions? And you know, obviously, Satan is loving all of this. Because as we're going to see in a moment, Satan has a plan too. So much for shortcuts, so much for detours and impatience when it comes to God's will. Vance Havner used to say that the detours of man are always worse than the main roads of God. And so, once again, God's plan is being attacked. And in case someone thinks that this is just a story about two angry, bitter women and now a troubled old man, just in case someone thinks that this is just a little family squabble among some ancient people some 4,000 years ago, you'll notice that this is written in the Word of God, and you'll notice that God steps in the middle of it. God's not just passively observing. And for our benefit, He's going to draw back the curtain for all of us to see exactly what's going on at the very beginnings of God's dealing with nations. Look at verse 6 again, would you? And Abram said unto Sarai, Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly, harshly with her, she fled from her face. Who knows what she did? Who knows what she said? Who knows what she called her? Whatever it was, it was bad enough for this woman who's now expecting a child to leave all of her security, all of her friends and family, and make her way to the wilderness, no doubt, to go back to Egypt, which was probably a, a, a death knell. Look at verse 7. And the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. Let me stop here for a minute. Who do you think that the angel of the Lord here is in this text? How many of you, how many of you think you know who he is? I'm not going to call on you, I promise. Okay. <laughs> if you're familiar with Judges chapter 6 and lots of other texts, then you will know, I think, who this is. In fact, before we get into what God is telling Hagar here, let's go ahead and establish why this is not just an angel. Go back to verse 9. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, now she's in the wilderness, she's expecting a child, she's brokenhearted, 
return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. Now, there's two words there, part of a command. You might want to circle them, return and submit. Both of them. Hard pill to swallow. And, here it is, verse 10, and the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed. Whoa, stop for a minute. What angel can say that? I will multiply your seed. What angel can say that? And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and thou shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Ishmael means God hears. Verse 13. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. It says that she called the name of the Lord who spake unto her. Not the angel who spake unto her. Verse 13, And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her. Thou God seest me. El Roi. Thou God seest me. For she said, Have I also here looked after him that seeth me. This is, I have chills right now because for me, this is one of the most powerful scenes in all the Bible. And it's precious. And yes, if you were to compare this scene with other Christophanies in the Old Testament, you would probably agree that this messenger is the Lord Jesus himself. And think about it. Here he is approaching a woman by the well who's brokenhearted, who's bitter. Here is a woman in the wilderness alone. And the pre-incarnate Christ comes and speaks to her. And you'll notice in verse 8, he calls her by name, Hagar. That's amazing to me. She's alone. She's in the wilderness. She's despised. She's an Egyptian. She's cast out. And God says, Hagar, this is the very first time the title, the angel of the Lord, is found in all of the Bible. And the very first instance of that title, a Christophany, to whom does Jesus speak and appear to a great prophet, to Abraham, to a saint, or some person of high rank, to a king or a priest. No, he comes to an Egyptian fugitive, a woman who is a servant, an outcast. And the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the friend of the friendless, he comes and comforts her. And then he guides her. And he strengthens her. And then he commands her. He calls her name in the desert. And when he calls her, that's why she says, I'm going to give him this name. The one who sees and the one who hears. He hears her cry. And by the way, folks, he also says something that Muhammad and his successors conveniently overlook when they concoct the Quran. Look at verse 8. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence camest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. And he said, look at me again, you could say, and the Lord said, Hagar, 
Sarah's maid. The Lord Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, did not call Hagar Abram's wife. And that is because God did not recognize this scheme of Abram's. And as the text is going to reveal, neither does God recognize Ishmael, their son, as the, the son of promise, the firstborn of Abram. People often say, why do you Bible-believing Christians, why do you always support and follow the line of Isaac and not the line of Ishmael? Because we're Bible-believing Christians. We can read, and we can see what happened, and we can see what God said, and we can believe it, or we can reject it. Including the fact that God showed mercy and love and grace to Hagar the Egyptian. Including the fact, by the way, that Hagar put her faith in Christ in this moment and was blessed by God for doing it. Pastor, how do you know that Hagar put her faith in Christ? Well, let's read it again. Verse 9. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return. Now we know who the angel of the Lord is now. Return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hand. Now that's, that's a tall order go back you know what she's thinking she's thinking i don't want any part of that woman and that place i don't want my son to grow up as a servant i'm going to go back to egypt if i can make it return and submit so the question is did she listen to the voice of the lord did she obey did she return and did she submit i mean folks she was on her way back home if you will she was on her way home and she had no guarantee that Sarah would receive her if she went back. In fact, humanly speaking, chances are she would not. Show her kindness? No, all of this for her to return and submit, all of it took something. It's called faith. Faith. Look at verse 11. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child and shalt bear a son and shalt call his name Ishmael. By the way, do you know there are only two other times where a name was given from God before the person was born? Now, there are many times when Jesus changed someone's name or God gave someone a name. There are only two, time, two other times where, where God gave the person's name, the baby's name, while still in the womb. John the Baptist and Jesus. And for Hagar, Ishmael. Thou shalt call his name Ishmael. Now, that means this. That means that Hagar has to go back, rehearse all of this to Sarah, Sarai, and Abram, tell him what God said to her, and then hope that they believe it. Did she go back? Did she tell them? Look at verse 15. And Hagar bare Abram a son. Well, she went back. She bore the son. And Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare, Ishmael. She told him what to name the child. They received her to that end. Verse 16, And Abram was fourscore and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. She believed what Jesus said to her by the well in the wilderness, and she trusted and so, Bible-believing Christians, hear this carefully, because Bible-believing Christians know full well who the Son of Promise is. 
We know his name is Isaac. He had a son named Jacob. And Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. But we also know that Sarai was not better than Hagar in God's eyes. We also know that God saves the Hagars who believe as well. And then we know something else. We know that God made a prophecy to Hagar. God's foreknowledge saw exactly what would happen with her seed. And it explains so much of today's situation. Verse 10. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. God hears. When people cry, God hears. Verse 12, And he will be a wild man, his hand will be against every, every man, and every man's hand against him. That's an interesting prophecy. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Now that's not a very long prophecy about Ishmael and his uh, the heritage to follow. And many of the Arab people, not every Arab is a descendant of Ishmael, but most. And the fulfillment, if you look at this verse, 4,000 years ago, Read the description, understand the description, exactly what Jesus said that that this generational family would become. I'm going to read to you something that was written over half a century ago. From Ishmael, the Arab tribes have sprung to fulfill the role of destiny upon the stage of time so accurately predicted of them here. They remain in the background of the Bible joining hands with Israel's foes. They found for themselves a prophet and hurled themselves like men, wild men, against the ramparts of the world, building up a brilliant empire and spreading their creed with the sword. Christian explorers blazing gospel trails in Africa found that the sons of Ishmael had gone before them and had set the continent ablaze in their hunt for slaves. Today they sit astride the oil reserves of the world and often threaten the peace of the world. Their rage against Israel keeps the world in turmoil, ever on the brink of global war. It was all foreseen and wrapped up in that embryonic prophecy spoken to Hagar long ago. That was written by a Jewish believer. This is not an indictment of, obviously, it's not an indictment or a prophecy on individuals who ever descended from Ishmael. Multitudes upon multitudes of the sons of Ishmael, you can call some of them Arabs or not, they have found grace and they have been saved and there are children of the living God whereas multitudes upon multitudes of the sons of Abraham have not done so it's simply a prophecy of the kind of nations that Ishmael would father he speaks here of an independent people dwelling in desert lands and resisting the encroachment of other nations and specifically fighting against the people of Isaac and this occurred For thousands of years, exactly as the angel of the Lord said, this has occurred for thousands of years before, hear this, before the existence of Islam. You do realize that the Muslim people, the Quran, that did not exist until 600 years after Jesus. And all that happened was this. One Arab 
a nomad by the name of Muhammad living in the 6th century. He's a son of Ishmael. As a son of Ishmael, obviously, he does not like Judaism. He doesn't like, therefore, the God of Israel. That's Isaac. He doesn't really like Christianity because they recognize Isaac and not Ishmael as the father of the faithful. But neither did he like the rampant idolatry of his own nomadic tribes. They had hundreds of deities. He wanted a monotheism. So he picks out one of the deities, the moon god, and he calls him the one true God. And over time, using this new religion, he and others make war against both Christians and Jews. And in that regard, Islam is a bit of a novelty. If you look at the whole scheme of things, that's why I say learning the Bible opens your eyes and your mind. It just happens to be the largest tool today aimed at the destruction of the sons of Abraham. But folks, it is not the only tool. Now remember this, please. God's promise to Abram was that his seed, it goes back to the promise to Eve of her seed. God's promise was that his seed, even his nation, by virtue of the Messiah himself, would ultimately crush the head of Satan. Satan knows this. Satan Satan knows exactly where the coming Messiah would come from. And so you know what? It's not so Muhammad so much who was against Isaac and Israel. It's not Ishmael either. It's Satan. That's what you have to understand. So Satan will use any means. He will use any nation as we see. He will use any tool to destroy what God has planned and promised all the way back at the beginning, including, note this, including the Jews themselves. Notice on the screen Deuteronomy 4. And you're going to read this with me if you would. This is a promise and a prophecy. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make graven image or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God to provoke him to anger. Who's he talking to? The sons of Abraham. He's talking to Israel now. I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. And the Lord scattered you, shall scatter you among the nations, and ye shall be left in few in number among the heathen, whither the Lord shall lead you. And there ye shall serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Now think about that for a minute. Satan's inspired disobedience, all the idol worship, the invasions from Assyria, Babylon, the Roman occupation, eventually the complete desecration of that land that God gave them. And in fact, as we noted on Sunday morning or Sunday night, Jesus himself said that Their rejection of him as Messiah would cause the temple to be completely destroyed, and it was in 70 A.D. So in other words, God let Satan have his way, a very short leash, 
to punish them. And Satan wants to punish them. He wanted to destroy them. And they themselves were at fault. But notice what it says. Verse 29, but if from thence, if from Babylon, if from Assyria, if from thence, thou shalt seek the Lord thy God, thou shalt find him. If thou seek him with all thy heart, with all thy soul. Now follow this verse. When thou art in tribulation, and all these things are come upon thee, even in the latter days. What a prophecy. Even in the latter days, if thou turn to the Lord thy God, and shalt be obedient to his voice. For the Lord thy God is a merciful God. He will not forsake thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers, which he sware unto them. You get this? God has not cast off his people, as Paul wrote and reminded us. God has a plan. God has a covenant. God has a purpose. Why are Ishmael's children so full of animus toward Israel? What fuels their desire to destroy them? What constantly pulls the Jews themselves from Jehovah God and this book? And rejecting Jesus? And why is the entire world fortified against this tiny little democracy? Why Haman? Why Nebuchadnezzar? Why Sennacherib and Antiochus Epiphanes and Caesar? And Himmler, the occultic SS, so full of rage to exterminate millions of Jews. The Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades. You do realize that Constantine, who early went to Israel and murdered the Jews. Imagine Constantine, his soldiers are carrying the banner of a cross. Remember? They're carrying the banner of the cross of Jesus. They march into Jewish villages. They round up people in their synagogues. They lock them inside and they burn them alive. And then they, they dip their knee and they ask God for forgiveness. This is how Satan was able to get the Jews to see Christianity as totally evil. Even the swastika painting KKK calls themselves a Christian organization while they burn a cross. But you know what? I'm not fooled. Are you fooled by that? I heard President Obama years ago say at the prayer breakfast, you know, a lot of things were done in the name of Jesus. And I'm thinking, I'm not fooled. You got fooled. I know who's behind it. And beloved, you just read the Bible and you won't be fooled. That's why, you know, I realize that not every state policy against Israel, not every observation of Jewish blindness, which was stated by the Apostle Paul, is anti-Semitism. It's not. So-called blood libel. That is also designed by Satan to divide and to destroy. I noticed this week, in fact, today, Elon Musk is being called anti-Semitic because, because he's promised to reveal how the ADL lied about libs of TikTok. I don't want to get into the weeds of politics and stuff, but to get them deplatformed off of what used to be called Twitter. Libs of TikTok, all they did was they happened to uh, sort of expose the mutilation of children. So according to the ADL, which is supposed to have a mission statement, the libs have to go. The problem is the founder of libs of TikTok is Jewish. She's a Jewish woman. I'm just saying, look, any discerning Christian who believes the Bible 
can see what's going on. Can see the spiritual battle. Can understand the phony slander of anti-Semitism against the children of Abraham, Jews, who don't have a far-left atheist agenda. Or against the children of Abraham by faith, that's us. So the calling George Soros, for example, destructive and evil is not anti-Semitic. It's not. Any person, Satan will use any means. Say, well, look who people are being duped. The ones who are being duped, Satan will use any means, any person, any policy, any program to keep God from fulfilling his promise to Abraham. To make sure that whatever God promised in the covenant never comes to pass. Doesn't completely come to pass. And beloved, knowing that the studies of the foundation always lead to the end because it comes right back up here in the end. Knowing that the studies at this beginning, what Daniel and the book of Revelation call the time of Jacob's trouble, we just read in the latter times when you're in the tribulation. So that I don't know if you've noticed this, but have you noticed that that Israel's options for survival itself have moved from broad to narrow? And now the only human option that is left for them to survive, ironically enough, are Christians. In fact, actually, Bible-believing Christians who are the only real friends of the sons of Abraham, which poses this problem, the rapture. What's going to happen when the last bastion of those who understand the Bible are gone and now they have only one option remaining for any kind of survival and what that verse in deuteronomy was talking about well the end time tribulation the time of jacob's trouble that daniel was talking about that jesus himself said when ye shall see quoting daniel surrounded by the nations of the world nations that are then literally led by satan himself and absolutely poised for extermination they have one option left. They shall look upon him whom they pierce. The Bible tells us that Jesus on a white horse, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Romans eleven twenty six, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion a deliverer. People say to me, Pastor, isn't it just so scary? What's going on? Well, we were told. We were told. And I'm just saying it can't be too scary if you knew all along and if you know already how it ends. And then also, if you know, as the Bible reveals in our text tonight, that God is personally involved in your life if you have faith. Hagar was not a part of God's original covenant with Abraham. Think about that. She was a stranger, but individually the Lord hears and the Lord knew, and the Lord cared. And knowing what we know about her story, and Abram's, and Sarah's, beloved, we have every reason to be patient, not push it, to be patient, believing, and joyful in all the circumstances of life. And God's people said, amen. Father, thank you for your word. And we know, dear God, these are not just stories. We know that these are real people 
who have real fears and hurts and sorrows and joys and victories and doubts and failures. But even more than that, Lord, we see in dealing with them individually, you have a grand and great and glorious plan. And it is coming to pass exactly as you've told us. I just ask, Father, that we will look back, see your faithfulness, see the fulfillment of your promises, and then trust you looking forward. Help us to do that, to trust you and be patient with your will always. We'll praise you for that in Jesus' precious name. Amen.